0: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the No Filter Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Dolitsky. It is great to be back here again for the second time this week. This week, as I promised, we're going to have a little bit more of an in-depth discussion about the, the latest debacle in Afghanistan. What is going down is one of the worst foreign policy decisions ever made by the United States by sitting president. So I wanted to take this time of the episode to discuss uh, a couple, a couple features about this whole Afghanistan debacle. Why exactly? Give a little bit of context. Why exactly we were in Afghanistan? What we could have done instead, um, and why this is so harmful to America and to American interests. So as I, you know, mentioned briefly in our live stream when we live streamed the president's horrific and inept speech. I mean, really a tone-deaf speech, I must say. Um, the United States had an interest in Afghanistan, started 20 years ago, because the Taliban, who was in charge of Afghanistan, harbored a organization known as Al-Qaeda and allowed them to gain a foothold in Afghanistan, and Al-Qaeda planned the entirety of the 9-11 terror attacks from Afghanistan. And so we had an interest, as one can imagine, Especially, remember, following the passions of of the immediate aftermath of 9-11, we had an interest in deposing the Taliban government and in the process trying to find uh, Osama bin Laden. So in terms of that first mission, we succeeded. We invaded Afghanistan and we deposed the, the Taliban. They were no longer in charge. And we started the process of trying to build some type of democratic government. We'll touch more on that in a bit. Um, so at least in that first regard, that first part of our mission in terms of d- deposing the Taliban, we were successful. In terms of finding bin Laden, it turns out bin Laden wasn't in Afghanistan. He was already making his way towards Abbottabad, Pakistan, where he would later be killed. So that's why we were in Afghanistan and th- that that's important to recognize that that is a vested interest, a good interest that we had in being in Afghanistan. We obviously don't want the Taliban, who has proved to be a capable terrorist organization, one that harbors obviously terroristic thoughts towards the United States, given their support of Al-Qaeda. We obviously don't want them in charge of an important region in the Middle East. So we depose them. Now, in terms of the nation-building uh, aspect that became the Afghanistan mission. So that, I believe, was 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 a failure. I think, by most accounts, it was a failure. Um, the people in Afghanistan, there are tribal people, um, as, a, as are most of the countries, frankly, in that part of the world. And so attempting to build some type of fledgling democracy that would mimic, if you will, the United States didn't seem like it was going to happen. And if it was a bad, it was a bad move. But I want to just... Pause for a moment and discuss um, this notion of you know democracy building around around the world. if you 've been following my tweets, my social media broadly speaking um, once since this new administration took office, you would know that i 've been very, very critical of the members of cabinet, specifically the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of State. why because it seems as if they've been spending most of their time dealing with woke politically correct ideology than they have been dealing with matters of defense and matters of state and people are lambasting me oh why don't you give a damn why don't you care about why don't you care about equality and equity and all the other buzzwords um and the reason why i don't care about those things in the context of matters of state and matters of defense are because the product of a defense department and a state department that is too busy focusing on those issues leads you to the debacle that we had in Afghanistan. Now I'm a bit biased as towards this thesis because I published it. Uh, This is my, this was my senior capstone paper for my undergraduate. I was discussing specifically, uh, specifically Iraq. Why was it that Iraq ended the way that it did? You know, could it have been fought differently? And I argued uh, excuse me, I argued that it absolutely could have it could have been fought differently what 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 happened what happened was as follows in the um in the when was it I think it was in like the nineties if you will um there was a call to change the way that military history is studied in the academy. Now, it's important to know that, you know, popular military history, the stuff that you see on the History Channel and, and, and the Military Channel of Blessed Memory, you know, so the, the popular military history has been very, very popular to the public. Um, you know, people enjoy reading Rick Atkinson's books on, on the Revolutionary War and on World War II. Um, people describe his books as history, as enchantment. There are Netflix series about Washington spy rings. You know, there are, there are, the popular military history is indeed popular. But in the Academy, that was never the case, right? In the Academy, military history was always seen to be some type of pariah, as John Lynn noted in the American Historical Review back in 1997. Um, and so what Explained the marginalization of military history in the academy. Um, So, what John Lynn argued back in that article in, in the 90s was that the military history departments were falling behind the times, right? The way that nearly every other department in most universities were starting to turn was they were adopting what he referred to as a holy trinity plus one. Right. So race, class, gender, and then labor was the plus one. That was how, that was how different departments were, were, were starting to evolve. And John Lim called on military historians to adopt to the new worldview that the academy as a whole was embracing. And what happened was we had the birth of what's called the new military history school or the war and society school. So what happened here? Well, instead of focusing on warfare and strategy and trying to learn the lessons of past conflicts, they were instead of focusing on things like the composition of armies and officer corps, uh, the impact of war on race, class, and gender. So, you know, one example um, had to do with the Civil War. Um, so, for instance, here I'm quoting from Robert Satino, the great military historian Robert Satino. Quote, in fact, for most present day scholars, the Civil War has become something more than a mere military conflict. They now generally portray it as a revolution that overthrew the social order of the South in this radical upheaval. Groups who were previously thought to have done little more than passively endure the ordeal of war now get credit for a more active role. so Southern women left their domestic sphere and often led resistance to the occupiers. Southern slaves boldly threw off the hated system that they held, that had held them bondage and seized land from their former masters End quote. so now, while I don't deny that the new military history school left a positive impact on military history and on the academy, what, what happened is, is that we've neglected analyzing past insurgencies, strategies, and tactics, and you inevitably end up with history is doomed to repeat itself, if that's what happens. And what I argued in this thesis is that had we actually paid more attention to learning the lessons of past battles that the americans have fought so to, iraq could have ended very differently following the initial invasion in 2003 and in particular and this is you know to make things come full circle in particular the united states has had a quite a bad track record of what of and of building nations of trying to build democracies um th- this has been this has been A problem endgame strategy in United States military history has been quite poor, and if only we paid attention to actually learn the lessons. And this goes really, this goes all the way back. I mean, the Spanish American War. um, There were great flaws. There were great flaws in building. You know, some type of like what what exactly was the endgame for for the Spanish American uh, the Spanish American War. And um, you know, that kind of ended in a bad way because Cuba Cuba fell to coups and revolutions on a pretty frequent basis, and then Fidel Castro came onto the scene and made Cuba an important player in the in the in international politics. Um, what about President Wilson's post-war agenda, right, which was described as an idealistic uh agenda. And Again, part of what Wilson was fell prey to was a lack of understanding of history. The same is true with Korea, the lack of cultural awareness and attention to detail that we that we put in Korea, right? The, the, that the, the, what is clear throughout a history of American conflicts, as I argued, is that there has been a a an othering, if you will, of pure military history. And that lack of historical awareness that strategists and soldiers possessed has had unfortunate outcomes, right? The great, the great, if you will, the greatest of all of the civilian strategists of the past hundred years, Bernard Brody, a blessed memory. So he lamented, this is already back in, back in the height of the Cold War, lamented how Quote, the present generation of civilian strategists are with markedly few exceptions singularly devoid of history. Right. Historical amnesia, uh, which is what I called it, um, was present, as we know, during Iraq in the intelligence community. Right. The intelligence community famously overstated the the intelligence regarding bin Laden's – not bin Laden, sorry – what's his name, Saddam's Weapons of Mass Destruction program. Um, Now, we're not going to get into that in particular, because I'm going to be canceled if I talk about that. Um, But again, as I argued in this paper, there's a history of the United States overstating its intelligence analysis about things like weapons programs and arms control and proliferation. But we didn't give a damn, because there's been a lack of studying what exactly happened in the past. And we see that play out in what happened in Afghanistan. Should we really be surprised that the State Department and the, the Defense Department botched this operation so badly, given the fact that since they took office, we haven't heard them discuss actual matters of state? We haven't heard them discuss actual matters of defense and war planning and strategy. And this is, by the way, those of us who were very critical of Secretary. Of defense, General Austin becoming Secretary of Defense was because he didn't seem to really be all that interested in writing and about writing about you know military doctrine and adapting the Pentagon to a fighting force to deal with great power competition. He comes in, boom, he starts hiring people to deal with diversity. And those of us who've been paying attention are like, well, what the hell? We all wanted Michelle Flournoy, who's one of the greatest experts in China, but she didn't get it, and to our detriment, I believe. So we shouldn 't be surprised that these, this administration effed up the Afghanistan debacle so badly because th- it doesn 't seem as if they 've been actually paying attention to genuine matters of defense and genuine matters of state, so with that being the case, you know what could have happened what 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 could you know an outcome in Afghanistan have looked like so, like I spoke about in the live stream earlier this week there are are not a, it, is, it is quite easy for anyone who has access to Google to start figuring out what potential strategies from competent strategists look like um, in Afghanistan. And if you do bother going through that Google uh, search, you will recognize that this whole notion that Afghanistan was a forever war um, and that it took up a significant amount of the United States budget was just total nonsense. I'm reading here from one book, uh, published actually this year, or late last year, early this year, I don't remember, um, by Michael O'Hanlon called The Art of War in an Age of Peace. And here he has a, a section discussing Afghanistan. And I want to just read, if I may, uh, from his book, because I think it's important to recognize the history and then also what a potential long-term strategy could have looked like for Afghanistan as opposed to what happened over the past couple of weeks. So here I am quoting from Michael O'Hanlon, quote, America's role in the Afghanistan war is now two decades old. Afghans themselves have been at work continuously twice as long. If one dates the beginning of the modern conflict to the Soviet invasion there in 1979, Americans are understandably tired of this war. It has by any measure been a frustration, especially when measured against the more ambitious nation-building goals of the first Obama term. Obama term. But it has not been an abject failure. The Afghan government continues to hold all major and mid-sized cities as of this writing, which is ironic, and a modest majority of the population lives in areas it controls. Much of the rest lives in contested areas. Even more to the point for Americans, the United States has not been again been attacked by a group that plotted or organized its aggression from within Afghan borders. The United States probably has the ability to do its part to sustain these modest yet real accomplishments at far lower cost and blood and treasure than before. The bad news is that there is likely no near-term exit strategy, and this reality should be faced head-on. The good news is that in strategic and military and budgetary terms, the cost of the mission is sustainable. Now listen closely here, people. The United States needs a policy that recognizes Afghanistan for what it is, a significant but not a top-tier U.S. strategic interest and builds a plan accordingly. That overall strategy should still seek peace, but its modern military element should be steady, stable, and not set to a calendar. Roughly 5,000 U.S. troops for at least five years could be the crude mantra, and here is Michael O'Hanlon's plan. A future force of 5,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan, aided by two to 3,000 other NATO military personnel, would contrast with the late 2019 figure of 13,000 GIs there. It would roughly equal the late 2020 figure. It would be 95% less than the 100,000 U.S. troops, along with roughly 40,000 more from other foreign countries commanded in Afghanistan by General David Petraeus and then General John Allen at the peak of the American presence in 2010-2011. This level of 5,000 might be reduced further, though the glide path could be slowed if conditions required or modestly reversed if Trump has cut too far. The advantages of this approach go well beyond the reduction in force numbers. By laying out a plan designed to last for several years, Washington would be avoiding the drama and the huge consumption of policy bandwidth associated with annual Afghanistan policy reviews that typified the latter Obama and Trump years. Some will say that terrorism in and near Afghanistan can be checked without an American military presence on the ground, even if our departure leads to all-out civil war and or a victory by the Taliban within the country. Now pay attention here, folks. Perhaps any future Al-Qaeda or ISIS presence on Afghan soil could be handled with long-range strikes or occasional commando raids that emanated from ships in the Indian Ocean. Or perhaps we could be confident that such groups have no substantial future interest in basing themselves in Afghanistan. But that latter argument ignores history as well as the geographic suppleness of global extremist movements in general. Few saw the ISIS caliphate coming in Iraq and Syria before 2014, but then all of a sudden it was there. And the former argument shows a poor appreciation of how counterterrorism intelligence is developed, usually by cooperation with partners on the ground, as well as an unrealistic appreciation for the geographic remoteness or ruggedness of the Hindu Kush. Standoff counterterrorism is generally an oxymoron. So again, again, strategies were available. And for whatever reason, at least I'm going to argue now for reasons because the administration and its cabinet were too busy focusing on woke politics, uh the 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 Afghan situation has gone has gone to hell. So what does this mean for the world for for, for the United States in the world stage? Um so today uh, Matthew Kranig and Jeffrey Semino published an article titled the strategic consequences of America's loss in Afghanistan uh, which frankly is something everyone should read and they list three uh, issues here number one and the most important issue I believe is uh, the loss in credibility right the the United States, by pulling out from Afghanistan in the way that it did, has reneged on its promises made to the Afghan people for the past two decades. And if that's the case, is anyone else really going to trust our word? Right. NATO allies have also been blindsided by this Biden decision. And questions are being raised about American reliability. Meanwhile, Moscow and Beijing, they're loving this. They're loving this they're sitting here waiting just for the right weather opportunity to be able to invade russia in the case of russia further westward in the case of china to invade taiwan and so here we are sitting here with just this 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 oh well we had to end it and we haven't paid attention to what this does for us on the world stage which has been a the the result being a horrific decrease and our standing and credentials. That's one. Number two, uh, human rights. I argued recently in in, in in an essay that to be considered strategy, I argue that strategy needs to have a, a specifically moral element to it. And clearly this exit strategy is devoid of moral sensitivity because by creating a vacuum, a, a very rapid vacuum, the Taliban has now taking control of the country, and they are not nice people. Despite what that CNN reporter said, who must have been on something, I have to give her the benefit of the doubt, that they're chanting death to America, but they they seem like nice people. We would invite them for Shabbat dinner if we could. You know, the, the Taliban are not nice people, and by creating this vacuum, the Taliban are undoubtedly going to be creating, you know, horrific... We're going to be seeing horrific scenes now coming out of them of their treatment of women and children and people who are non-believers and Christians. I mean, it's just going to be, it's going to be a disgrace. And so part of my critique of the exit strategy is that it lacked a moral sensitivity to what would happen if they left in such a rapid and spontaneous way. And now, this last thing is, again, part of, part of what was so just tone deaf about the president's speech was, you know, the president said, oh, we need to, we're going to focus on great power competition. Well, one of the ways you focus on great power competition is not by getting out of Afghanistan. Because what happened right away? The second we got out of Afghanistan, just the other day, the Chinese are ready to run right in. And the Chinese want to go into Afghanistan. They want to cut a deal. Foreign Policy Magazine today was reporting. They want to cut a deal with the Taliban, uh, put their Belt and Road Initiative into Afghanistan, start taking the precious minerals that that are apparently plentiful in Afghanistan. And now the Chinese have further inroads into the Middle East. So... How great is that? How great is that? This has completely undermined American foreign policy. This is a disaster of the highest order. And I want to be clear. We can sit here and debate whether or not we should have gone in to Afghanistan or whether we should have gone into Iraq. And I think good people can disagree about those issues. But we have a crisis unfolding in front of us, and we ought to put blame on the leader and leaders who initiated those decisions. And in this case, it's the president of the United States, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, Secretary of State Blinken, and Secretary of Defense Austin, and they need to be held accountable. And I I, I ask people who voted for Joe Biden. I did not. But I ask people who voted for Joe Biden, given how botched this mission went under his watch, just in the past week, are we really confident in Joe Biden's ability to lead the nation in matters of state and matters of defense? Are we really OK with the president being on vacation? during the crisis, not willing to come back to the White House, being forced to come back to the White House, not answering any questions, and then going back to vacation. Is that really how we want a president in a time of crisis to react? Is that how we want them to act? Side note, if anyone's seen this picture from Camp David, I hope everyone here has been able to see it. Uh, This is I mean, this just makes everything so much worse. Uh, The picture which the White House tweeted out, if you can't if you can't find it anymore, message me somewhere. I'll send it to you. There are, are, are two really bad things going on in this picture. Uh, which raises a lot of questions. The first one is that <laughs> the White House seemed to have doxed um, members of the CIA. Right? Clearly, there are three people sitting in in the video conference, and the label underneath says Doha Station, which is the which is the CIA uh, um, station in in Doha, in Qatar, and their faces are there, ready for the world to see, uh, as well as two other people with the the name CIA listed underneath. Again, who those people were not sure. Probably not a great idea to oust to them on social media. Problem number one. Problem number two, the clocks are wrong. If anyone took a, took, a, took a look, Moscow and London are not three hours apart. They're two hours apart. And yet the clocks were shown that they were three hours apart. Um, which is leading some people to believe that it, it's actually it's actually a, a photoshopped image. Um, because you know, it's, it's, it's Camp David. It's, a, it's the, you know, one of the most highly guarded places in the world, and it is run in tip-top shape. So the fact that the clocks are off uh, is definitely not a small and minor thing, and so that needs to be inve- investigated. Okay, close the parentheses. So, again, I, you know, I, I ask people who voted for him and who are concerned about foreign policy whether or not you were really confident in his ability to lead, whether or not if the Chinese follow through on the threats that they made yesterday— that given the state of American foreign policy with this withdrawal from Afghanistan, the Chinese already threatened to invade Taiwan. Are we really confident that Joe Biden, secretary Blinken, secretary Austin and Jake Sullivan, are we really convinced that these are the people we want? I I urge you to think hard about that. Obviously the answer for me is no. And I want to just end with one point. Again, we can have discussions about whether or not we should have stayed, we shouldn't have stayed, we should have invaded, we shouldn't have invaded. But I just want to put things in, in, into a little bit of a more human perspective. The other night I was on uh, the phone with a buddy of mine at American University. I'm not going to mention his name. He's he's currently active Air Force. And uh, we were on the phone. We were just talking about a final that we were working on. And um, I asked him, like, dude, you know, I, I just – I have to ask. You know, what are your thoughts on on, on what's going on in Afghanistan? And, and he got quiet, and the guy's tough as nails, this guy. He got quiet, and, 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 you know, he told me, he said, you know, when I was stationed in Afghanistan, um, the local Afghanis there, they, I mean, they loved us, he said. He said, like, the barbers and the bartenders, like, these are the people who had signed photographs of of general petraeus up on their wall these are the guys who hung american flags these are the guys who helped us who were happy that we were giving them a better life away from the taliban and now they're dead like so that's how i feel that's how i feel you don't think that these people are going to be the the, the targets of the taliban because they helped the United States? And we're just leading, letting them die? We've left them to die? Like, that's how I feel. They're all dead. And dang it, that, 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 that stung like a million bees. And so I want everyone who is listening and considering the situation in Afghanistan to remember that there was a very human element, a moral imperative that we had to do this differently to protect the lives of not only just the local populace of Afghanistan, the people who have lived a better life free from Taliban, but in particular the people who helped the Americans, the translators, the mechanics, the bartenders, the barbers. We had an obligation to them, and we've botched that obligation. I hope this is the only foreign policy blunder that happens in the course of this administration. And by God help us, I hope this is the only foreign policy crisis that this administration has to deal with, because I truly don't have much confidence in in, in in this administration's ability to deal with the most important matters in the world, which are matters of defense and matters of state. Well, as promised, this was the follow-up episode to the live stream, a little bit of the history behind... Afghanistan. I hope you enjoyed. Thank you all very much for listening. This has been another episode of the No Filter podcast. Until next time, have a great day.